0: Swallow. Whatever Diffusion It even vibrates like real Diffusion I've got no option but to sell you all For scientific experiments
1: And don't think we don't mean that. Welcome to Diffusion. My name's Lachlan Watmore, and in tonight's show, we've got a whole heap of bunch of stuff. We're looking at sexual dimorphism in particular. We're looking at the the difference between the X and the Y chromosomes, and how do men and women really differ. Later on, I'm going to have a little look at phylogeny, the relatedness between animals. Uh, But first up, we've got Ian Wolfe with the news. Mm -hmm.
2: computers have patented a screen that watches you watching them. Their idea is to insert thousands of microscopic image sensors between the liquid crystal display cells in the screen of your PC, pocket computer, mobile phone or television. Each sensor captures its own small image and software stitches these together for a single large picture. The more sensors there are, the wider and clearer the image. If some of these sensors have lenses that focus differently, then the software switching between them could let someone zoom in on the action in front of the screen, better than a zoom lens on a camera. Apple suggests that these video displays are perfect for video conferencing, because people would always be looking straight into the camera. This would allow every video display to have a camera function without taking up extra space for lenses, and the light from the screen provides built-in lighting for recording a picture. As the technology goes into production, it will become cheap enough to become the new standard for video displays and cameras. Computer screens and TVs that spy on the people watching them? Science fiction writer George Orwell and Philip K. Dick wouldn't have been surprised. A roof tile, that harnesses solar energy to heat water and generate electricity, has been invented by an Australian industrial designer. The plastic tile is filled with solar cells and connects to our house's hot water system and electrical wiring. Sebastian Bratt, a graduate of the University of Western Sydney, says the tiles are designed with urban dwellings in mind particularly the new generation of so-called McMansion-style suburban homes. The tiles consist of a clear, polycarbonate chassis, containing a water vessel and photovoltaic cells. The tiles can be manufactured to match a variety of roof tile shapes. About 20% of thermal energy that hits the cells is converted into electricity. The rest is used to heat the water. Bratt runs a coolant through the water in the tiles, which goes to a heat exchanger. The heat exchanger transfers the heat to a regular hot water storage tank. Meanwhile, the solar cells generate electricity as direct current that goes to an inverter connected to the house's power box, which remains connected to the main electricity supply. The idea of being on the grid is you generate loads more power than you need during the day, and that gets fed back into the grid. That means the house, in effect, is generating its own power and generating the excess into the grid. If the house uses more than it generates, the user gets charged. If not, they get a credit from the power company. It takes about 200 tiles to generate a maximum of 1.5 kilowatts, more than enough for an average three-bedroom suburban house over a year. Dr Dong Chen, a research scientist with CSIRO Manufacturing Infrastructure Technology, who wasn't involved in this design, says it makes sense to use roof tiles or any exposed parts of a house for solar heating. He also says the inventor needs to look at the cost of the tiles, including their maintenance, and how safe they are, and making sure they don't leak. Nature reports French researchers have shown that alternatives to batteries called supercapacitors can be made from baked seaweed. Francois Beguin of the CNRS Research Centre on Divided Matter in Orléans, France, and his co-workers say that seaweed, when burned to a charcoal-like form, is just the right stuff for making the electrodes in state-of-the-art supercapacitors. The seaweed-derived polymer that he's hit upon, called alginate, is non-toxic, it's widely used as a thickener in foods and cosmetics. 20,000 tonnes of it are extracted from seaweed for this very reason every year. It's very cheap. Supercapacitors provide an alternative to batteries for power storage in portable electronics. They consist of a pair of plates or electrodes loaded with electrical charge that can be subsequently tapped, producing a current. Capacitors can provide more power, higher voltages or currents, than batteries, but they tend to store less total electrical energy. They could be used as emergency power sources for computers, or as supplementary sources in electric vehicles where they might store energy captured during braking. To make a miniaturised power source, begin and his colleagues realised they needed a form of carbon that's easy to use, it's fairly dense, electrically conductive, and capable of holding a lot of charge. The seaweed capacitors can be charged to voltages twice as high as currently available activated charcoal supercapacitors, and the material is twice as dense. They hold up well over time as well only lose a little capacity after 10,000 cycles of charging and discharging. That's a lot of recharging your car. So when can you expect to see burnt seaweed helping to drive your car? Well, Beguena is already in touch with companies seeking the seaweed solution to portable power. N Satanyara Rayana, a graduate student in India, has figured out a way to miniaturize a windmill so it can be used to charge a small mobile phone battery. It's a simple fan blade that's attached to a generator and it's waterproof so it can be used in the rain. Imagine clipping one of these babies outside the window as you take the train to work, charging up your mobile phone and other electronic devices you might have on hand from the breeze. Its small blade cranks out a DC flow of 1 ampere with a potential difference about 12 volts. In other words, just enough juice to power portable electronic stuff. It beats solar, it works in the rain, as long as the wind's blowing. A 62-year-old man in Dundee grew 20 years younger when the medication for his illness worked better than anyone expected. The Sunday Mail in the UK reports that he was crippled with porphyria cartania tarda, a condition where there is excess iron in the liver, which gets in the way of making hemoglobin for the body to use oxygen properly. He lost all his grey hair, lost an unhealthy amount of weight, and he was so frail that everyday tasks exhausted him. His skin blistered and flaked. This led to sclerodoma, which made his skin stiffen and seize up, He couldn't move his body from the waist up. He was treated with a harsh regime of ointments, steroids and ultraviolet radiation therapy. Then his hair grew back dark brown instead of grey. When his skin cleared up the wrinkles had gone away. He regained his energy and now is able to go fishing with his sons and play with his grandchildren. He's still taking 15 tablets a day. Now when he's out with his 59 year old wife people ask her who a young toy boy is. He's now regularly mistaken for one of his 40-year-old sons, and his friends don't recognise him. Literally. Medical students have filmed his progress and want to present him as a case study to a medical conference in London. One in 6,000 Scots are thought to suffer from some form of this disease. Dr Robert Dore, his consulting dermatologist, says it's incredibly unusual for dark hair to return. The wrinkles may have been reduced as a side effect of the scleroderma, which tightens up the skin. He's now concentrating on reducing the steroid intake. They don't know at this point how to reproduce his recovery in someone else with the same disease. But the world is watching this lucky man eagerly for insights into reversing the effects of ageing.
1: Have you ever researched your family tree? Some people make a living by researching the entire family tree of all life on Earth. It took me the better part of the weekend to square away my place the other day. It was a complete mess, and the longest part was filing away old bank accounts, tax papers, receipts, bits and pieces of magnetic and optical media, and last but definitely not least, piles of old radio scripts. It got me to thinking about a young fellow I met last year in London who worked at the Natural History Museum. He spent his working day classifying and working out the relatedness to each other of various groups of living things, a study known as phylogeny. If you were to ask me, in all of biology, there isn't a more complex and multivariate task. So I'd like to talk about phylogeny and its engine, evolution. Who came from who and where and why is almost the bread and butter of biology. So I'm going to start off with an overview of the system of classification itself. Animals, as we know, are in a separate kingdom to plants. Some organisms are obviously animals and some plants, but sometimes telling the two apart can be difficult. Many years ago, Ian Wolfe and I had a bit of a holiday up at Port Stephens where we went for a snorkel around the rocks. There we saw a stalked organism with a bulb at one end, gripping the rock with what appeared to be roots one could be forgiven for mistaking this critter for some sort of plant, but it was actually an animal. In fact, it was an Ascidian, and therefore more closely related to us than most of the other creatures I could see, being a member of our own phylum, Chordata. Phylum. Yeah, I know, a funny word. Sounds like something you'd say to an accountant. When you start classifying living things, you have to have a dependable system of categories. Otherwise, you end up not knowing your asshole from your elbow. There are something like 2 million described species of animal, and even though half of them are insects, you can appreciate that a system of classification is absolutely vital to avoid confusion. To be a member of a phylum, a species must have the basic body plan that defines members of that phylum. For example, to be a member of the huge phylum Arthropoda, which includes all the insects, spiders, crustacea, centipedes, millipedes, scorpions and horseshoe crabs... An, ima- uh, an animal must be <gasps> bilaterally symmetrical, metamerically segmented with a reduced coelom, having a hemosolomic body cavity and jointed chitinous exoskeleton with sclerotinized plates which molts periodically. It must have a jointed segmental appendages which usually show original specialization along the brain and a head with several cephal- cephalized segments along with a brain and ganglionated ventral nerve cords. The animal must also have segmented organs and some anterior segments. Dorsal celomic gonads usually have separate sexes although hermaphrodism may occur. The embryo space, based cleavage and ciliated larvae are never formed. <laughs> Everybody got that? As I mentioned previously, biological classification is very strict, as it must be, because strict definitions enable us to make comparisons between phyla and to uncover their relatedness to each other, being vertebrates or animals with backbones. We humans tend to be very speciesist when thinking of Noah's Ark. We think of vertebrates going in two by two, the rhinoceros and the kangaroo. However, vertebrates comprise only 5% of described species and are representative of only one basic body plan with variations. Throughout the animal kingdom, there are 32 basic body plans with variations, each body plan represented taxonomically as a phylum, which is the level of classification just below that of kingdom. In the 18th century, a Swedish naturalist called Carl von Linnae, who later Latinised his name to Carolus Linnaeus in the scholarly fashion of the time, devised a system of biological classification that we still use today. The Linnaean system of classification, or taxonomy, uses a hierarchy of groupings, moving from the general to the specific. Thank you, Paul. For example, we humans are obviously animals and are members of the animal kingdom. However, so do sponges and sea anemones, so to distinguish between major groups of animals we use the term phylum or in the plural phyla, and that's with a PH, not an F. Sponges are members of the phylum Periphera, and sea anemones belong to the phylum Cnidaria, which is one of my favourites and includes corals and jellyfish. Other phyla include Echinodermata, which includes starfish, sea urchins and crinoids, mollusca, which includes octopuses, slugs, snails and not puppy dogs' tails, crustacea, which includes crabs and lobsters, and Chilicerata, which has got spiders and horseshoe crabs, among others. Our own phylum, Chordata, covers animals that have some sort of internal structure strengthening their dorsal surface, or more commonly called their backs. Humans are members of the subphylum vertebrata, We have a vertebral column of bones to give our body support. Other chordates have simpler supporting structures. The larvae of the ascidians that Ian and I saw have a simple shaft made of cartilage. Yeah, I'm too cheap to use two songs. From the subphylum vertebrata, which includes reptiles, fish, amphibians and birds, we go to the next level, class. Humans are members of the class Mammalia. We are hairy, warm-blooded animals with a four-chambered heart who suckle their young and love a good cuddle because warmth is very important to us. We are placental mammals. Our young are born in a much more advanced state of development than those of marsupials, who are born tiny little grub-like things and have to undergo further growth in the pouch. The third subclass of animals are monotremes, like the platypus who lays eggs. From class, we move down to the next level, order. Humans are members of the order Primata. We are primates. We have an opposable thumb to give us a prehensile grip, mammary glands located in our chest area, and a large, convoluted cerebral cortex. Other primates include monkeys and quite possibly fruit bats, although that is a matter of debate. The next level is family. We are members of the family hominidae, the apes. We have a relatively flat face, a large barrel chest, and no tail. Other apes include gorillas, gibbons, orangutans, and our closest living relatives, chimpanzees. Finally, we come to the last two levels of classification, genus and species, both of which we use in the scientific names of living things. Humans belong to the genus Homo, we have a large brain, we can articulate speech, and we have a long childhood. We are the only living members of our genus. All other Homo, such as Homo erectus, are extinct, which is sad last of all we classify our species level as sapiens and we name our species Homo sapiens using the very strict convention of genus first with a capital letter and species last with a lowercase letter Homo sapiens is distinguished from Homo erectus by having a more prominent chin a higher forehead and sparser body hair than our more hairy low brow ancestors okay that's how we classify living things in the weeks to come I'm going to look at the various aspects of biological evolution that made life on earth what it is today stay tuned. Don't run away by overpass. Next up we've got Mark West, and Mark's going to talk about the difference between X and Y chromosomes, which tends to account for the differences between men and women and sexual dimorphism in general. Stick around.
0: It is a question that has plagued humankind's deepest philosophical thinkers ever since men were men and women were women. Why are men and women really so different? Most women claim to have noticed long ago the strangeness in males, but now it seems at last that scientists have the evidence. Researchers studying chromosomes, which harbour genes containing DNA that act as your human body blueprint, have discovered that the Y chromosome, which determines maleness, is downright strange. Chromosomes are found in every one of more than one billion cells that make up the human body and are inherited from your parents. There are 23 pairs of chromosomes in the body, one of which determines sex. Women have an XX pairing of sex chromosomes, and men a XY pairing. Research reported in Scientific American suggests Not only is the Y chromosome tiny in size compared to the X, but that it holds far less genetic information. There are less than 50 genes on the Y, compared to about 3,000 on the X. Moreover, all other pairs of chromosomes have exactly the same number of genes. However, the tiny Y has had an exciting journey to its current form. The research has found that Y did not start out its life as the runt of the chromosomes. About 300 million years ago, Before mammals and even dinosaurs had appeared on the Earth, a fascinating process of evolution started to change the Y chromosome, which was then identical to the X. The sex of our ancestors was then determined, not by sex chromosomes, but by the temperature of the embryo at a developmental stage before birth. This is similar to modern reptiles. The Y chromosome began its independent life when the first mammals appeared. It contained a gene called SRY for sex-determining region Y. This gene triggers the formation of the testes, which then produce testosterone and other substances that mold maleness. The presence of this gene on Y, however, disrupted the DNA surrounding it such that the X and Y chromosomes could no longer entirely pair up in a process called recombination. Recombination allows chromosomes to swap genetic information during the production of sperm and egg cells. Without recombination, which keeps the chromosomes fresh from possible harmful genetic mutations, the Y chromosome progressively mutated, so much so that much of it no longer exists and 95% of the X and Y chromosomes does not recombine. But does this mean that as evolution takes its course, the ever-shrinking Y will spell the death of the male? Geneticists say that we should not yet add the male to the endangered species list and for now all is not lost for the little modern Y. It was previously thought that the Y chromosome contained mostly junk DNA and that the production of the testes triggered by SRY was its only function. But it is now known that the genes remaining on the Y chromosome are particularly important for survival in males and for fertility. In about half of all couples affected by infertility the problem rests with the man. Disruption of the genes on Y can reduce sperm count causing infertility Infertility research is now directing efforts towards understating the strange Y and searching for a cure. On the flip side, the possibility of a new male contraceptive that targets the sperm-producing regions of Y is being developed. So things aren't looking too bad for us blokes.
1: That was Mark West with the X and Y chromosomes, the difference between them.
3: 60 Second Science Do you know anyone who is overweight, who smokes, or who has high blood pressure? Chances are you do, and chances are they could be one of the next 17 million people to die globally over the next year due to cardiovascular disease. By 2020, 1 billion people will be over the age of 65, with age-related cardiovascular disease set to become the leading cause of death worldwide and is set to overwhelm the healthcare systems in Australia. But it is easy to prevent. Regular exercise and a healthy diet help keep cardiovascular disease at bay. Change your lifestyle and change your life for the better. We all want to grow up nice and strong and healthy, but we need to remember that there is no point if all our arteries and our blood vessels are clogged up with fat. Simple everyday acts can help prevent cardiovascular disease. Walk down to the shops instead of using the car. So go on, get out there and get active.
2: 60 Second Science Ivo Smilek from St Andrew's Cathedral School. 60 Second Science is brought to you by high school students enrolled in the University of Sydney's course Problem Solving and Communication in Science.
1: 60-second science. Now, Ian, you were talking about two-way televisions before, and you really got my back up. I read 1984 when I was a kid, and I've been very, very wary of authoritarian uh, the spying systems ever since. So what do you think about as that? As you
2: should be yeah. wary of them. Yeah. But of course, um, obviously, Apple read the book as well, and this is where they got the idea, and it's going to be very, very profitable.
1: Oh, great. The Orwell Macintosh. Mm-hmm. Orwell Macintosh, the Orwell TV, the Orwell mobile phone. <laughs> Uh, do we get victory cigarettes and victory gin? And you know what are those those V two things that you know were bombing Airstrip One, formerly known as London? I, I can't forget all that bit, man.
0: I can't remember myself, but the, the bit that I loved out of 1984 was the the Ministry of Peace was the was, was the, the responsible Ministry for war. The, yeah, the, the, Ministry, of was, of the Ministry
1: of Love was instead of the Defence. Yes, yeah, and that was the the Ministry of Love was responsible for no, the Ministry of Truth was responsible for propaganda. Yes, that's yep. right. Yes. Yeah, and
2: nothing's changed. No. And, of course, um, with Big Brother, we've Mm -hmm. got ID cards coming in, or at least they were going to be coming into Australia, according to our federal government. They were going to be saving us lots of money with Centrelink, Australia's social security department, and they were going to be used for Medicare, and everybody would have to have one for Medicare to keep all their records straight so you wouldn't have to get in a queue except that Centrelink employees have been found to be fiddling the records and uh, spying on their neighbours. Who would have thought?
1: I understand that this show gets podcast. Uh, I know this show gets podcast, and also it gets podcast picked up in the United States. Going to be interesting to see what the Patriot Act says about that. (laughs)
4: Just leave tomorrow. Never ever see any sorrow when we sleep in the ocean, far from all the commotion. And we run, and we hide from the slow assassination.
1: And that's all we've got from Diffusion. If you would like to email us, send an email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion, all lowercase, all one word, at 2ser.com. Diffusion is broadcast nationally on the community radio network and you can get up get our uh, podcast from feeds.feedburner.com forward slash diffusion radio. that's feeds.feedburner.com forward slash diffusion radio. Contributing to this show have been Mark West, yours truly Lachlan Watmore, and of course Ian New- Ian Wolfe has done an excellent news job with Matt Clark behind the switches doing a fantastic production job as well. Stay tuned we'll be back next week on Diffusion.